Yes. We had chocolate cake for breakfast. Caitlin. Yes. It was delicious. It was. It was my first time having chocolate cake at the Driscoll. It was not my first time because during the festival, a dear friend that also works at the Driscoll had a piece delivered to my room. So one night, late night, when I got back into my room after a very long day of festivaling, it was waiting for me and I may have eaten the whole thing. I'm going to call out Erica and tell you I'm a little offended that I wasn't included in this. Emily and I are supposed to be 50-50 partners and be treated equally. I know you're friends as well, but I'm putting in my order for the future, whether it's Erica or someone else at the Driscoll, I would love to come back to my room to a surprise piece of chocolate cake. And it really is the best. <laughs> Maybe a glass of bourbon, but I can also find that myself. Thanks to our partners at Still Austin. Uh, absolutely. Uh, why did we have chocolate cake for breakfast? So being a little over a month since the festival, we sat down with our friends at the Driscoll to recap our very first year at our new home, um, the Driscoll, which is also a Hyatt, which is also maybe the most historic hotel in Austin for sure. Maybe Texas in general, there are ghosts. There are ghosts. ghosts. Yes. Sure. They are all, I would like them. I don't want them to get a bad reputation. People not go because of the ghosts. So if you like ghosts go to the Driscoll, but if you don't like ghosts, there's unhaunted areas that you can hang out in. Absolutely. We've gone on a tangent. (laughs) Those are the ones I I did ask during our wrap up with the Driscoll, when we were all telling our, some personal things we thought might have been ghost other stories from other people. And I looked at our lovely Driscoll friends and said, is this all your wrap up meetings with clients <laughs> that they just tell you all of their, their, their ghost experiences. And they all smiled and basically said, yes, yes. But backing up a little bit, um, we spent eight years at a beautiful hotel called the Stephen F Austin. Uh, some things changed during pandemic. We still did an event there during the festival this year. Their balcony is the best thing in Austin. And we did a return to the balcony on Friday night of the festival this year, but our home base was the Driscoll. We're going to say the Driscoll about a hundred times today. Um, and it was new. I mean, it was a very familiar hotel for the ATX team because it is a center point in Austin. It's got a fantastic bar and it's beautiful during Christmas. For those of you that joined us in June and wonder, come back in December and see a giant Christmas tree in the lobby. Um, but it was really awesome to be in a place with so much space. We, we really got to spread out, even though we were a smaller festival this year, I like to say on purpose, just so everyone knows we were virtual as well as in person. So we wanted it to be intimate and accessible and be able to have a new type of programming called micro programming, which is today's release, which we will get to in a little bit. Um, but we were able to have registration and four different panel spaces and lounges and photo suites all in the same place. And I had a really great time. I never, I just like ran around up and down different stairs. There was like a hundred different directions. You <laughs> There's could so go. many different staircases. Yeah. Which is all also is both great and not great in that. Like you can, you can get places fast. You can also like slip out. Um, but also you don't run into as many people. So, you know, pluses and minuses, but as a, uh, if you've listened to this podcast, for a while, you probably know that my deepest fear is ghosts. Have we and talked about that? I feel like in all the podcasts we've done, it's probably been mentioned at some point, okay. 
Or if you watched our ghost tour from the virtual festival. Oh yeah, we'll repost in 2021. That. It was also at the Driscoll and your yes. fear. It yes, does both we things. We talked about it that I had a lot of apprehension. Most people were just anxious about being back in person. I was very anxious about just staying in the Driscoll <laughs> and the ghost situation. Wait a second. Can we just pause for a second? Because I just had a flashback of, I saw this happen like three or four times during the festival. And I really didn't stop you because lots of stuff is going on. But I would see Emily kind of far away from me do this, this I don't want to call it odd, but it was, it was definitely a ritualistic looking little bowing, curtsying, dancing thing. And I had seen it a couple of times. And then on the last day, everything's over. We're moving out of the hotel. Emily's maybe like 30 feet away from me. And I thought she was talking to someone and she did the same little thing. And she walked over to me and I was like, what did you just do? And is that a dance? Are you happy? What's, what is going on? And her answer was, I went around all weekend doing little curtsies and thanking the ghosts for allowing us to be in their space and for welcoming us so nicely <laughs> into the Driscoll Hotel. I, as I don't want to see them interact with them, want to be their friend so that they don't haunt us. And I thought since the Driscoll, I mean, the chocolate cake we had is the 1886 chocolate cake. That's when the Driscoll was built. So some of these ghosts have been there quite a while. And I feel like people curtsied in 1886. I don't know that that's true, but it seems like they did. So if I'm speaking to a ghost that like wore a big ball gown dress and went around curtsying, that's how they want to be greeted. So yes. But the funny thing is my only ghost experience was the first night we were there. I was so tired, fell asleep, definitely sleeping very hard. And then the, the night midst, that we, yes. Okay. So the first, like Emily and I shared there. a room the first night. Oh no, guys, there was a second oh, okay. night. It was okay. Sorry. It was the second night there. First night, definitely dead to the world, which is really ironic to say in this moment, talking <laughs> yeah. about ghosts. So the second night, you're right. That I, in the middle of the night, kind of woke up and in this haze, heard this like faint happy birthday being sung. And uh, in the like sleep awake moment, I was like, I think that there are ghosts singing happy birthday to someone in the mezzanine area, but <laughs> sound friendly. <laughs> yeah, they sound friendly and they are not in my room. And I think that I am safe and they're not going to come and bother me. And I'm just going to go back to sleep. And the next day I asked a friend, so middle of the night, happy birthday. And she goes, yeah. It was drunk people on sixth street. <laughs> I was like, that makes a lot more sense than the ghosts in the mezzanine area. But I thought we had decorated the whole area. There were so much like festive things happening. It felt like maybe they thought a party was happening and it was someone's birthday and they should come sing happy birthday. I agree. Not, I, what not what happened. what happened. But people did have different stories. They did. And we have lots of, you know, I, I greeted a lot of panelists with, do you know about ghosts? Like the hotel was built. I should have better history. I was like, it's built in the 1880s, this, that, or the other, like giving like half stories to people as those that didn't know what the Driscoll was. I wanted them to understand the history that they were in. And I did talk to the evil cast, at which point I told them that oh. I don't watch evil because I'm too scared, but that the Driscoll was haunted. And we had a whole conversation about it and it was a lovely moment. And mm. I want to watch the show. I just don't know that I'm brave enough. Yeah, it is. I will say I haven't started season three because each time I think about starting it, it's nighttime and I don't want to start it at night. That again. actually makes me feel better until you I don't want to watch until it until I know because different 
different seasons have different tones and they get a little scarier at different points. We will talk about it when we release evil, but I haven't started it for that reason. So, but aside from the ghosts at the Driscoll, the staff is lovely. So nice. there's so much space. The bar is just one of my favorite places in Austin all year round. Bacon wrap dates, Emily's favorite. Yeah, they're so good. Um, but we were really happy to be in a new space, but also have the Stephen F. Austin back. And in talking about being back, you know, this past festival, we also had 800 Congress, which was a new event space. So just, you know, we're really proud of the footprint of this year's festival and the ability to get from one thing to another, be in the air condition as much as possible. It's real cold, you know, just yep. so you guys know, it's hot in June, but every building will be freezing. Yes. It's a hot Ghost tip. or no ghost, it's freezing. Hot tip for the festival. Well, for this release that we're about mm-hmm. to release, release, good job. Give to the listeners. Well um, it was in the new things about the festival. Yes. Driscoll being one, we tried out a new type of programming this year mm-hmm. called micro programming. And since you and Jen, Jennifer Morgan, our director of programming, do you want to talk about where this came from? Yes. Uh, the programming itself came from the micro programming idea came. And again, we weren't sure if we would ever do it again. We will just hot off the presses. We will, it worked. Um, but was like most feature length panels are four to six people. It's an hour. Um, they're kind of bigger, broader topics. And so we thought what happens if you put two or three people on a panel and you focus on a very specific part of the topic, give them more of a platform, but then also shrink the amount of time. So less wandering is the goal. I don't know if we always win at that goal. Um, and then only 30 ish people in the room. And we're still working out like what exactly makes a programming the right fit for micro and what can be feature length. But the start here was the number of people on the panel and the length of it, and then the number of people in the audience. And so this one is called reinventing the water cooler, how to get or keep an audience. And it really came out of Jen's brain and some of the conversations we were having in the idea that in TV right now what 600 shows a year, 600 scripted shows a year, I think is what they say. I feel like it's more, it feels like an under, an under number, but even great shows don't get a lot of, sometimes get missed, don't get a lot of attention. Um, so what in the old concept of a water cooler conversation where guys in the old days, people used to gather around the water cooler at work and talk about what they watched the night before. And I remember always hearing like, you know, when there were three channels, I love Lucy in the vernacular in America was just called the show. Did you see the show last night? Like that's how ubiquitous it was. And they would stand around the water cooler and talk about it. So in today's day and age with 600 shows, how do you get a large number of people talking about the same thing and kind of get out of niche and into a larger, broader appeal and Jen and I felt that this last year, Yellow Jacket specifically really did that. Um, I think Station Eleven really did too, which we did a panel on. Station Eleven's not on this one, but we really wanted, I mean, talk about like the evolution of programming. We really wanted a Yellow Jackets panel. Showtime's a great partner of ours. They wanted to make it happen. E1 is a great partner of ours. They are producers of it. They're making the new season of Yellow Jackets and it is not Which any is great, great, more television. And it's nowhere near Texas. So it was very hard to pull together a Yellow Jackets panel. In its place, we thought, why not have some of the producers 
and executives that have to do with Yellow Jackets. We also had, so we have Drew Comins, who's an EP on the show and Jacqueline Sicario. I hope that's how you say your last name. The EVP of scripted programming at E1 are representing Yellow Jackets. We also have an EP on Cruel Summer, which is freeform show, Michelle Purple. Um, and it's moderated by Sarah Petrie from the Alamo Draft House. Um, but talking about that concept of how do you, can, can you, is it like just a swing of the dice? You try to make good things. Are you trying for that? How, how, how do you do that? And then once it's happening, how does that affect you? And maybe how do you keep it going? Um, so we were really happy that both Showtime and E1 really helped us get at least some representatives from the show that evolved from a specific series panel into a topical panel, which happens a lot actually yes, <laughs> with our absolutely. programming. Um, so yeah, like it, I think it got really, it was really exciting to find this combination and honestly, a little shout out to our moderator, Sarah, like she was such a perfect fit for this conversation. She does such a good job. It's her first time moderating with us and I'm ashamed to say that it should have been much earlier because yes, she's her moderated for many things and is amazing and done some really cool, um, conversations in the past at other events and at the draft house, but yeah, she was phenomenal. Let's hear our second release of the podcast this season and our first micro programming to release reinventing the water cooler. Hi y'all. Uh, I'm Sarah Petrie with Alamo draft house and I love, I was in this room earlier and I just want to say. I was telling our panelists, like, being in this room with y'all, it feels like we're at a slumber party. So I cannot wait to dish with you about these two juicy AF shows. Um, so I'm going to bring out, first of all, uh, Drew Cummins, the executive producer of Yellow Jackets. <laughs> Michelle Purple, the executive producer of Cruel Summer. And Jackie Cesario, the executive vice president of scripted programming for E1. Hello, Jackie. Um, hi. Hi. We're all drinking water up here. Yes. Absolutely. This is water. It's very Austin. Yeah. Yes. It's water. Um, it's ranch water. It's ranch water. Yeah. Um, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for yeah. having us. So I'm just going to assume that we've all seen these shows because we're going to be spoiling the crap out of them. <laughs> okay. Just if you haven't seen it, I mean, I don't want you to leave, but. I don't want to spoil like the shows. <laughs> They're so good. Um, so I want to say congratulations on teaching an entire nation the joy of delayed gratification. Mm. Because <laughs> I have That's to true. say it was so fun to watch shows that I couldn't just binge. And like I know a lot of people were like probably like, no, I need it now. But like it was honestly like a delight to get to wait. Um, and it reminded me of like you know, shows I loved growing up, like X-Files, where you'd spend the whole week being like, what's the government gonna do? Like, what's, what's Mulder <laughs> gonna do? Um, so, I mean, what, what an achievement. So congratulations to you guys. Um, and that's what we're here to talk about. Like, how, how did this happen? Um, in a world where like binging is now like the go-to, like how did y'all do this? Um, so I wanna point out a few obvious things before we get started. These have all been said before, but for the purposes of our conversation, I think it's kind of amazing, but maybe 
makes sense that there's so many overlaps between Cruel Summer and Yellow Jackets. <laughs> and I wonder if that's why they're such water cooler shows. Um, so we've got, you know, obviously the, the schedule, so not released all at once. Mm -hmm. We've got, they're both female forward, female driven shows. Um, 90s nostalgia, right? And then we've got, I mean, not true crime, but like this mystery element that gets you hooked. Um, and then just, I had one more. Okay. Jackie Cesario. <laughs> <laughs> She's the common thread. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the nonlinear time yeah. jump narrative. So, um, Jackie, since you're invested in both of these shows, um, I would love to start with you. I mean, can you tell us, like, how, how these came to be and how you got involved? Yes, <laughs> I can. Um, it actually started, both of them started around the same time, and I think it was 2017. Um, and they both came, one was a, Cruel Summer was a spec script, um, Yellow Jackets was a pitch, and both of them, you know, were just so compelling, right, for in some ways the same reasons, for some ways different reasons, and they just, you know, you were so entertained, but they both asked so many questions. And that to me was like, once I finished the script for Crow Summer, I said, I don't know what the hell happens. <laughs> and neither did our creator really at the time. Yeah. But we worked on it and we we're so, so proud of it. It was, it was so challenging to do three time periods. We started to have to color code the scripts. Yeah. You know, they, we still use that same system. Um, and yeah, it was something that, I mean, I'm an avid TV watcher. And I was, you know, starting to get bored watching TV. I was like, oh, I can see the twist a mile away. I know where this is going. Okay, this, 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 and this. And with Cruel Summer, I was like, I'm so, I'm chasing kind of the plot in a beautiful way that, you know, and in both cases, you know, you know what happens at the end of the pilot, and that's not what you're trying to find out. You're trying exactly. to find out why it happened. Mm -hmm. And so, and the same with the pitch, and I'll let Drew, you know, tell you about the day we heard it, the first time we heard of the Yellow Jackets pitch, but we were both just like, we have to do the show. Um, and we were, uh, we fought like hell to do it, so. Yeah. Well, yeah, please, Drew, speak to your, how you got involved in that pitch. Um, you know, it was, uh, it was a beautiful day. And, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I mean, listen, I think, um, you know, part of our job, I think, as producers and executives is to sort of curate, you know, the, the creative opportunities that we're involved in. And you hear a lot of ideas, right? And you hear a lot of ideas like everything is a photocopy of something else, everything feels derivative of everything else. And so I think for me, what was very arresting about the experience of sitting in the room with the creators of Yellow Jackets and imagining what it could be, because again, we didn't have anything to read, we're just having a conversation, was really the tone of the project, you know, which I think is something that has certainly resonated with the audience, mm -hmm. um, because it is such a unique tone. It's a thriller, it's funny, it's dark, it's incredibly violent, right? But yeah. I remember specifically, and it's funny, it's a line of dialogue that never made it into the show, but I remember specifically sitting in, in this room with Jackie and the, and the creators of the show, the writers, and they were sort of doing a line of dialogue from adult Shauna, who was being interviewed by the reporter we meet in the pilot, and she says, I know what you really want to ask. You want to ask if we fucking ate each other. <laughs> and, so, and so when that was said, it, like, it made my blood run cold, and it was one of those things where I was like, this execution, because people will say it's, it's a young female Lord of the Flies or it's like Lost with teenage girls, right? But for us, 
I think what has made the show resonate on so many levels has been that execution of tone, where mm -hmm. it kind of goes there. It says those indelicate mm -hmm. things, and it asks very indelicate questions of the audience. Yeah, no, it certainly does. Um, <laughs> and I know you don't want to talk a lot, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> Michelle was like, don't ask me any questions. I um, usually have Jessica to hide behind, because <laughs> she didn't come, so. But no. I think that, I mean, and you and Jackie can both speak to this, but I think the tone for Cruel Summer, it, it, you know, it's not the same, obviously, mm -hmm. but I think the tone of that show is also so important about, like, what makes it not just, like, a run-of-the-mill, like, teen show or run-of-the-mill kind of, like, you know, crime, mystery, drama. Yeah. Um, like, and I think both shows, part of what made people get so, like, invested in it was, like, obviously the, the character is incredible, but the, the 90s-ness of it Nailed, like you guys nailed it. Yeah. Like, well, we were teens in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so was I. And so was I. And the so, problem like, was, is the cast well. would go, "This is so retro," and I'm like, <laughs> "Cool." <laughs> cool. <laughs> Wait, I was uh, a, I was a toddler in the nineties. Yeah. <laughs> I remember you said Olivia Holt didn't know how to what a cassette had to work. We handed her a Walkman, <laughs> and she was like. Oh, no. What do we do? And my husband, who's the directing producer, sat there and we're like, oh, God. Oh, no. Oh, God. But, yeah. <laughs> and we wanted to be very true to the 90s. We didn't want you to feel the 90s, but experience it like we did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was very important. Yeah, it never felt like it was trying too hard mm -hmm. on, like, on either show. It just was like these small touches that you're like, like, I literally was like, there's a dress that Kate is wearing in one of the episodes. I was like, I... I mean, the Drew Barrymore that. with the white T-shirt underneath, because that yeah. was me. Yeah, that <laughs> was, I, had, I, I, was, I remember when I like to live in like this is what I'm wore. <laughs> I put it on; it didn't look the same. <laughs> so we all know. Yeah, it's like those touches are so perfect. Um, so, at what point, like in each show's development, was the decision made that it was? Like you knew it was going to be released, you know, every week instead of all at once. Was that just from the get-go, or? Go ahead. No, I was going to say for us, it was sort of embedded into the fabric of how yeah. we designed the story. You know, I think that um, Showtime as a network has been an incredible partner. Our, our partners at E1 have always wanted to really develop this narrative in a way where it could be this sort of puzzle box mystery. But I think what's interesting about Yellow Jackets, and I think the same is true of Cruel Summer, is every week we're asking the question of, of this mystery of what happened out there, but more poignantly, it's this mystery about who are these people, right? Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that really resonated with an audience, mm -hmm. and I think allowing the sort of silence around that question mark to burgeon between every weekly release was something that was very, very valuable. Mm -hmm. To answer your question, you know, I think for us, given that we were working at a network like Showtime that is very much about that Sunday night mm -hmm. kind of, mm -hmm. you know, appointment television yeah. mm -hmm. um, with the success of things like Homeland and Billions mm -hmm. and their other shows, it was always imagined to be that kind of mm -hmm. release for us from the very beginning. And so we were able to create this foundation that was always shaky and uneven, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. That like, even as you're understanding the world and the history of the characters, you're also knowing that at any moment that foundation can tilt, right? And, and totally throw you off guard. And so that was something that I think was just a, from the get-go, um, something we embraced and something that was really a benefit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and show. for Cruel Summer, the conversation was always gonna be one a week, but it was about the first two playing on the same night because yeah. you, know, you had a Jeanette perspective and a Kate perspective. And I think that was 
what was unique about this show. And so once we realized, we, we build in these oh shit moments. That's you what we sure call do. them. <laughs> sure we try do. to do an oh shit moment at the end That's of the, the cold open. Term. That's the <laughs> technical term. Like literally yeah. it's like, where's our oh shit moment? Yeah. It's very sophisticated. Um, and, but it was as we were seeing the cuts, it was clear that these first two need to go out because it showed really the uniqueness of how we're telling this story mm -hmm. and then one a week. And the, the dialogue between the weeks were like some, it was like something I never experienced just on these private Facebook pages of fan theories. It was insane. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, I wanted to ask you all about that because that was part of, I mean, that's obviously part of the fun is like mm -hmm. everybody being like, well, I think she did it or I think yeah. she didn't do it. People like, were passionate. Yeah. There like, was a who, lot of passion. Who's the girl that gets killed at the beginning of Yellow Jackets? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, There's, everybody's looking for clues. Um, and that's, I mean, were you guys reading that stuff? I mean, you clearly were. Yeah. I accidentally, accidentally followed one of the private Facebook pages. I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was Freeform's Cool Summer page. And I followed, and all of a sudden I'm reading these things and I got kind of addicted because I was like, Oh, that's a good idea. We should have done that. <laughs> or I would like write down things. I was like, next season, we'll yeah. take that idea. So there were some theories yeah. that were solid. Yeah. But I did. I was a voyeur until one day somebody goes, do you think anyone from the show is watching? And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> Running the stage. You're like, I, I hope someone in this room is in that Facebook group. And they're like, I'm Dan still on it. If, if they're not, they will be now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, but audiences are savvy, and I think we're, we're working on season two right now for both of these shows, and it's, you know, sometimes people, we do not underestimate our audience, and that's very important to, I think, all of us on this on the stage, yeah. is that, you know, no detail goes unnoticed, you know, and we're just, we pay really close attention, and so it, it's so rewarding then to go on Twitter and to go on Reddit mm -hmm. and see how closely our audience is paying attention, I because, bet. you know, nothing is coincidental, you know. You know, I mean, it, it's it's interesting to talk about sort of the Reddit and Twitter presence of the of the fans for this show because I think it's been incredibly gratifying to see how much the aspects that we deliberately placed in hopes of really resonating mm -hmm. have connected with an audience. But what's also been really exciting is even certain mundane details related to production design or wardrobe <laughs> or whatever yeah. have have sparked these intense oh, debates. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, yes. like. You know, I will say, you know, a, a testament to our um, incredible costume designer, Marie Schley, like mm -hmm. the antler queen, who's obviously become like a big figure <laughs> online. You know, that was like a sketch of a piece of wardrobe that wow. we saw, like the, the term antler queen you was guys created by like the fans, the you know what I mean? Yeah. We, we just saw pictures of costumes, and we were like, oh, we like that, that kind yeah. of gives us chills, that feels kind of yeah. spooky and weird, right? But it's amazing how, the engagement with the fans that I think, you know, to the point of this panel, was able to elongate and burgeon and sort of, dare I say, the romance between the audience and the yeah. storytelling mm -hmm. was able to give even deeper life and resonance to the creative choices aesthetically and certainly from a storytelling standpoint no, for as sure. well. For sure. And like, I mean, were there anything, any elements on, you know, either show, like, oh shit moments or, well, probably not the oh shit moments because everybody was like, oh shit, but like, <laughs> that you didn't feel like were noticed as much or like that you didn't, that didn't have the impact that you, that you kind of thought they would? I think I had the opposite. Yeah. I think I had, oh, that's not going to resonate as hard. And then it, it was something that the audience glommed well, on to. Do you remember yeah. what it was? Uh, Annabelle. Oh, oh yeah. Annabelle. I remember being like, meh. Okay. <laughs> I, like literally, I was like, because yeah. we, truthfully, we, yeah. we, 
threw this in one of the episodes about Annabelle, we didn't know what it was going to be. You didn't? No, <laughs> we sort of figured it out. But I didn't think it was going to be as big of a question to the audience. I didn't think that was going to be something that they latched onto. That's wild to me because I was like, it's, is it the creepy doll? I'm going to be really mad. <laughs> <laughs> it, you Annabelle just never know minute. what sometimes yeah. an, how an audience is going to respond and what they're going to respond to. Yeah, yeah. Did, yeah. you, did you guys have one? Jeff. I mean, he called me from set. I wasn't there that day. And he goes, oh my God, Warren delivered this line when he says there's no book club. It's so good. <laughs> Let me tell you, my book club lost their minds. Like, for real. It became like a big inside joke for me. I saw, club. I mean, we were at an event the other night and I saw one of the one of our partners from Showtime and he was wearing a, a button, a pin, yeah. that said there's no book club. And I'm like, <laughs> where do I buy that? You know, the fact so that people on Etsy are making pins mm -hmm. with that line of dialogue. Yeah. And I mean, we had no idea it would resonate in such a profound way, but we liked it. We yeah. loved it. But but to your question, you know, I think there were so many. I'm similar to Michelle. I think there were so many aspects of the show that, as we were moving through the process, obviously everything is coming together so fast, mm -hmm. right? And so there were aspects were like, okay, that feels right. That feels right. That feels right. But we didn't realize it would strike a chord in the yeah. way in which mm -hmm. it did. I mean, I have a friend who's not in the industry, but he called me after. Spoiler alert, the death of Laura Lee in the plane. Oh, and he called Laura me, Lee. I know. May she rest in peace. She's, with, she's in a better place now. But, um, but he called me and he said, I saw the fire in that plane came from under the passenger seat. And I know that that is not how a plane would actually catch fire. So that means there's supernaturalism yeah, on yeah, the plane. Yeah. There's some kind yeah. of higher yeah. darkness that has caused Laura Lee's death. And I was kind of like, Keep going. That, yeah. that may, that may, I was like, that may have just been a, a fast VFX choice, and we didn't actually fact check it with yeah. the, you know, experts on aviation, you know. But that has been so great about this show that even the most nuanced, and frankly easy to overlook details about the creative yeah. choices have have caught hold and have sparked such intense debate. And I don't know that, that would have happened had we been in a scenario where you could binge it all in one weekend. Yeah. People Absolutely would have been not. talking about it for a short amount of yeah. time. There's and they'd be on to the next. Yeah. yeah. There's just so much content. Like, and we're we're all watching the same things, but we're not watching them at the same time. Yeah. So the the fact that you can be like, oh my god, I'm I I can't believe I just saw what I watched. Like, what does it all mean? And then you go online and you're able to engage in a conversation and in real time. I feel like it's so powerful. And you know, we can say we're geniuses. You know, we we came up with this plan, but a lot of it is like who bought the show, right? Like mm -hmm. we took mm -hmm. Cruel Summer out to everyone, and Freeform was the only buyer. Right? And like that was it. And they took a risk and they believed in it and like they really championed it. With Showtime, we sold it to several different places and you know, other buyers would have released it all at once and mm -hmm. it would not have been what it is, right? So Well and, and I will just piggyback off of what Jacqueline said because the choice to go with Showtime was one that was made certainly from a standpoint of the release model, but also from a standpoint of what the creative execution of the show would mm -hmm. be, right? There's a yeah. version of Yellow Jackets that could live on Netflix alongside Stranger Things, and I don't think we would have met Melanie Linsky's character, Shauna, you know, mm -hmm. masturbating to her teen daughter's boyfriend, <laughs> right? Or seeing her decapitate yeah. a bunny with a shovel in the pilot That's episode. True. Like, it yeah. gave us these sort of tone-defining moments yeah. Yeah. that we were able to sneak in and be bold in that way, right? Like, I remember when we were pitching the show, and to Jacqueline's point, we had, we were very fortunate that we had a bunch of different platforms that wanted to buy it. And I, I remember sort of thinking about it, and there was a line we said in all the pitches, um, I can't take credit for this, it was our partners Ashley, Ashley Lyle and Bart Nickerson, the creators, who said it, but the goal of Yellow Jackets was always to fundamentally subvert the expectations about what a show about 
women could be mm -hmm. and what a show about teenagers could be, mm -hmm. right? And, and so women, I think, yeah. yeah, teen women. And so we were able to do what could have been probably a bit more of a routine young adult show mm -hmm. through a prism of something so much more hard-hitting and provocative mm -hmm. by virtue of our, our partners at Showtime. Mm -hmm. When you guys were like glancing through online, did anybody guess stuff that you were like, wow? You did it. Like, good yeah. for you. Did I it? have an answer to that, but I want Michelle and Jackie to go I first. I didn't see anyone. No. No one I saw guessed the doorknob the door moment with yeah. Jeanette. That was. That killed me. <laughs> and that wasn't something we came up with until the we were about shooting episode. Eight or something? Yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. yeah. And I literally had a, like a ding ding. I was on set and I was like, we had ideas, but we were like, we didn't have yeah. it completely. And I literally, my brain, you know, when you really have that moment of like, yeah. and I called the writer and then together we were like, okay, it could be this and this. And so it wasn't something we knew. Yeah. We were just yeah. rolling forward. I mean, but there was, and yes. from the very beginning, there was always this idea that Jeanette didn't see her, but she saw her purse or she saw something. We didn't have but that But this element. was the very visceral, like cinematic way to show that. And so we call that now our doorknob moment. Yes. You know? That's yeah. an oh, holy shit moment. <laughs> yeah. That was, some people hated it. But it was some controversial. People, yeah, Even the right. network, they were like, are you sure? Yeah. 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 Her face. Uh, and the song, the song we uh, yeah. Killed me. Drew, what were you No, I was just going to say, you know, it was incredible to watch, and I think, again, a benefit to the release model, right, of having this mm -hmm. weekly conversation. You know, I will say, like, we came out shortly after Squid Game, which, which I think came out at a time where the sort of prevailing wisdom within Hollywood had been people want hopeful, people want light and bright, you know? And so then Squid Game came out and people were like, ah, but they loved it, right? And so I think the timing of the actual release date was super beneficial to us, yeah. right? That, that Netflix, thank you, had sort of primed the pump for us. People were ready to go sort of dark and sink their teeth into something very provocative again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think for us, you know, it was fun to watch as this sort of conversation yeah. continued to grow was not only how the audience connected to things that we had planned and sort of Easter eggs we'd planted throughout the season, but also there were a few places, not knowing how the show would be received by the fans, where we said, you know what, we had this really bold idea, but maybe we'll just save it for season two. Or maybe that's just pushing it a little too far. And so there were a couple of things that the audience you know, touched on, such as, you know, sort of the cliffhanger that happens at the end of the season finale where um, Juliette Lewis's character Natalie has been grabbed by a bunch of people in purple and there's a voicemail, I'm trying not to spoil anything. There's you a voice. There's a voicemail, you know, saying, uh, you know, who the fuck is Lottie Matthews, right? One of the things I always loved about this premise was that similar to Game of Thrones, you could turn over new cards, not only every week, but also every season, mm -hmm. in terms of other survivors who were alive, yeah. right? And so the predictions about yeah. that were great, mm -hmm. and even some of the like very kind of bizarre, crazy motivation for some of the traumatic paranoia of the characters that led to some very, you know, aggressive action on their parts, you know, mm -hmm. like Melanie Linsky's character, Shauna, stabbing her boyfriend, <laughs> why she would do that. You know, there were fan theories sort of about the truth of that dynamic that touched on places that we wanted to go to but maybe weren't, we were afraid at the time gotcha. that it might be too far. Yeah. I mean, I'm just going through my head of all, like, there's yeah, the tattoo. There's just, yeah, there's a lot, yes. there's a lot to yeah. unpack. Yes. Um, well, we should give y'all a chance to ask a few questions. I think we have 
a little time. So yes, sir, your hand went up. Do you think that the, the kinds of stories, the genre lends itself to more of the week by week rather than a, a, a binging model where you have a story that's going to be a long stretch that you're gonna take people on that journey for as opposed to an hour-long drama, a law and order, a castle, right? just something that comes back to a story that you're doing each week that's not necessarily connected to tissue. A hundred percent. I mean, at E1, it's something that we talk about a lot. You know, what genres do we want to lean into? And I think the mystery and thrillers, and even if it's a drama, it has to have that added element of like, why do I need to come back? Again, you guys, audiences have so many choices. Even myself, I'm avid and I have friends who make shows and like, sometimes I'm like, I didn't finish it. You know, like I only watched <laughs> two of it. Not yours, I watch all your shows. <laughs> Look at me. She has candy on Hulu right now. Also excellent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, She's seen all of it. Yes, I have. But that's. But we should talk about that too. Of just like that was a different release model, right? But um, but yes, I do think that it's super important. Is like how how a show ends, and there has to it has a question. It has to be like why do what do I need to find out? And so there is a mystery element to that. For sure. And I would just say to 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 answer your question, on top of what Jacqueline said, for our show, you know, there was this fundamental mystery built in. It's a it's an ensemble show, right? So that of course gives it opportunity for a lot of doorways for the story to travel through, but mm -hmm. it's actually a double ensemble, right? Because it's, the, it's them in present day, it's them in 1996 and the time of their survival in the wilderness. And I think for us, you know, the release model was super beneficial because this is a show that likes to ask questions and not really answer them, mm -hmm. right? And I think that is something that sort of feels a bit, you know, verboten and, and, and kind of dangerous, but we kind of also love that, right? Mm -hmm. we, we like to keep people on their toes. We like to keep viewers confused. And you know, there are questions that may not be answered for many seasons to come, and we're totally okay with that. <laughs> we're not okay with it, no. <laughs> yeah. And Michelle's not okay. Michelle's like, we're answering this question <laughs> at the end of the season. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Um, I, I was part of the global Women of Letters group, the Supernatural. I, was, I did fan blogging and went to Vancouver here until supernatural dead, but we obsessed literally exactly what you guys were talking about from the from you know the picture from the beginning of the you know every every episode I mean literally the colors so with you knowing that already in that funny it's so so much fun with you knowing that fans do that because that that's a fan base thing you create a huge fan base mm -hmm not answering everything. I love that so much. With with knowing that, I mean, do you go forward literally trying to, you know, put in put in that stuff that's gonna make your fans a little crazy and make them think? Because that's intelligence. When people are asking questions, that's intelligence. It's a good question. What do you guys think? Michelle. Yeah. I think we do, but as I mentioned earlier, it's sometimes the things we did by accident, <laughs> that but you know that just came naturally to the storytelling and to the characters, whatever journey mm -hmm. and motivations, you because you just don't know what an audience is going to latch onto. You mm -hmm. don't know. I mean, there are so many times I'm making a show and I'm like, is this good? Is it going to make sense? Is it going to resonate? You just question yourself. And but the thing I always say, Jack, is that we can always make it better. Mm -hmm. We can always make it better. Like, how can we keep pushing the envelope? But sometimes you get surprised with mm -hmm. the things that people latch onto. Yeah, 
But we yeah. did, like, you know, in season one of Cruel Summer, like, we had a scene where Jamie's in the car and he's got mm -hmm. the gun in the glove box, right? And we're like, I don't know what he does with his gun. Right? <laughs> yeah. But we want you to know he's in a dark place, yes. right? And later you find out he was actually there protecting Jeanette, right? But you didn't know at that time. You're like, is he gonna, is he out to stalk her or is he protecting yeah. her? And like, those are the kinds of things that, you know, yes, we like to yeah. plant. And in Cruel Summer, I think it's much more of a contained story. So mm -hmm. we do try and answer all of those things. Um, and Yellow Jackets, we, we'll, we'll maybe answer something, but we're gonna add five more questions at the same time. Well, and I would just say, you know, I think there is a distinction given the nature of the storytelling in something like Cruel Summer, right? Like you're bringing a mystery to its natural climax and conclusion mm -hmm. so that you can launch a new mystery every, every season. Mm -hmm. I think for us, it was always about planting the seeds that could, you know, with any luck, knock on wood, lead to many seasons of questions and answers, right? And so I don't think we ever deliberately tried to frustrate the audience. And I will say in contrast to some other very successful, <laughs> plane crash centric, you know, sort of mystery puzzle box shows of yesteryear that shall remain nameless. Our creators, our writers, our showrunners, there's always a method to the madness, right? There's yeah. always something that is going to be cemented or sort of posited in, in a season that will have a payoff later. It's not just sort of like, let's do this salacious thing so that it feels very novel and, and we'll just figure it out, right? I think it's always been very grounded in um, the emotional reality of yeah, the characters definitely. and their journeys. Well, and it's because you guys respect your audience, like you yeah. were saying. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you don't talk down to them, you respect them. Yeah. And that's makes a huge well, difference. And I think, you know, obviously the, the title of this panel, right? I think when you are asking people to make an appointment with you, once a week, rather than, oh, I'm, I'm home and it's raining or it's snowing or whatever, so I'm just gonna click through 10 episodes of something and you know hope it keeps mm -hmm. my attention. You're, you're asking more of the audience by asking them to invest and come back. You know, mm -hmm. it's like a great binge is, is a super hot one night stand, right? But, but, a, weekly, <laughs> but a, weekly, a weekly release, a relationship. it's a love affair. It is yeah. a love affair that can last many years, right? And so I think that has to be nurtured. And so I think there has to be, on some intrinsic level, this give and take mm -hmm. with your audience, where you're not just frustrating them, right? But you're giving yeah. pieces as you're asking them. You're seducing them. I also exactly. think both our shows, you have to actively watch. Yes. You cannot be, be on, on your phone, <laughs> answering no, the door. No, you cannot. Because yeah. you will miss it. Yeah. Both yeah. shows, you have to actively watch yeah. to participate. That is a really good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even dream of looking at, I wouldn't want to look at my phone. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, I would watch you. and be on Twitter, like, what are they thinking? What are they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. But you'd already kind of seen it. I mean. Uh, I think, do, how, how much time are we, can I go a little bit longer or no? Um, you tell me, girl. Okay. She said we go longer last one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, she did say that. Ma'am, over here. When a show fully drops, right, the whole season, then clearly it's already been written, it's all the acting's been done, there's no audience feedback, you know, or anything, fan mm -hmm. feedback. So, is that often, is that a desire of the writers and creators sometimes, that they they want it their way and they want the story as they envision it? Or is it really just driven kind of by the networks or is it a little bit of both? It's a, it's a collaborative medium. Yes. It really, really is. Um, yeah. I, I mean, listen, I, the, the question is sort of in the delivery of something that can be binged, is it so that it remains unaffected by... I mean, the truth is for us, I can't speak to Michelle's experience and, and maybe Jacqueline can speak to it as well. You know, by the time Yellow Jackets premiered, even though it premiered week to week, like 
we had wrapped the production yeah, in Vancouver. We were, done, yeah. we were done, right? What I will say to your question though is watching the burgeoning of the fan theories online, watching the, the activity on Twitter and Reddit and, and many other social media platforms that I don't even know how to activate, right? <laughs> um, I think it's had an, it, we'll see with season two, but I think it's had a really interesting effect on some of the storytelling approach in a good way, right? To Michelle's point, like things we didn't see coming that, that titillated people or kept them guessing or made them want to come back every Sunday and make that appointment with us and devote that time or you know whenever they would watch it. Um, I think in certain ways we want to lean into that. I think to your question, you know, we were always, and it's a testament to our incredible writing team, we were always very devoted to the, the North Star of the creative vision. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we would have allowed a lot of the creative choices to be influenced once the story of the season was yeah. kind of in motion. But as the show continues, I guess you guys will have yeah. to answer that When you that can't question. make everyone happy. So exactly. like if we would have switched our ending because we were like mm -hmm. him, already done shooting by the time we started airing, but it, you, you can't chase it. Because if you chase it, then it's just, Instead, it's not gonna resonate yeah. with somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you have to do what, you know, the creators and the team feel is right to tell the story and for these characters and for the show. Mm -hmm. Well, and as we wrap up on that note, um, both shows, Season two, um, whole new story, whole new cast, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. same. Well, probably new new people. Um, is Maybe. there anything? Is there anything you can tease for us? Oh, I'm bad at this. For this special Michelle? room here, Jacqueline. Um, I don't know. I what am I? Well, I'm a, I I, that's that's the hard part. Is I have something. You go. <laughs> of course you, know, you do. I, <laughs> well, I think you know. The big question that we kept coming back to as we were working on season one of this show was like, what really happened out there, right? But I think the deeper question, and one that I hope we will lean into, and it's not a spoiler, guys, sorry, but like one that we will lean into in season two is not just what really happened out there, but also how did it change them? Hmm. What has happened in the interceding 25 years to shape these adult women that we meet, right? Going back to the idea that the fundamental mystery of the show isn't who did they eat, who fell in that pit, it's who did it make them into, right? And I think all of us on a universal level are the product of our lived experience. Trauma shapes people in different ways. You metabolize you know, your pain in different ways. And so I think for us, the hope is that in season two, we can lean even more deeply into that question of sort of on an intrinsic emotional level, and not just to the individual, but their relationships mm -hmm. with each other, mm -hmm. right? Because they, yeah. were, they were sort of in this baptism of fire together. Mm -hmm. And so I hope that sort of question of sort of like, are the women possessed by the darkness or do the women possess the darkness, mm -hmm. right? Ooh, like, I, I like yeah. what you did there. I think yeah. that is something Ooh. that we will continue mm -hmm. to double down on, hopefully in season two and many more to come. And then, and then I'll just say really quickly, aesthetically, winter is coming. Okay. <laughs> and summer is coming. <laughs> summer is coming. Yes. Um, and remember where you were in Y2K, um, because yeah. that's where we're going to be in Cruel Summer season two. Oh man, so. I'm so excited for yeah. all of it. You guys are excited, right? Yeah. Yay. Well, thank you guys so much for thank being you. here. And thank you all for being here. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and produced and edited by Sarah Light. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 11 in Austin, Texas, between June 2nd and 5th, 2022.
For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.